Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you do not have a Bible, you forgot one, you need one, just put your hand up in the air and a Bible will be delivered to you. Keep your hand up. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 20 through 33 today. And today's message is entitled, How to Bless Your Marriage. We're studying verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul explained that God did all these amazing things for us. And in the last three chapters of Ephesians, Paul explains all that we do for God. In chapters 1 through 3, they tell us our root is in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are about our fruit in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3, they show how we are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 show how Christ is in us. Chapters 1 through 3 explain our spiritual blessings, while chapters 4 through 6 explain our spiritual behavior. You see, the only way we can live out the second half of Ephesians is by having the relationship described in the first half of Ephesians. We cannot live like Christ without first receiving Christ. Last week in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul told us that since we are Christians and we have been rescued out of darkness, well, we must turn away from darkness. We must turn away from our flesh and the sins of the world. Paul told us that you are children of light, therefore walk as children of light. He told us that you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and so you and I ought to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been given the power of the Spirit, so walk in His power. Today's passage is going to focus specifically on how God calls us to do marriage. Now, if you're single and you hope to be married one day, then take lots of notes But even if you don't ever plan to be married, this passage will still give you lots of tools to strengthen your other relationships in your life, and it will also teach you how to encourage and pray for those who are married, friends, family in your life. So let's pick up our study in Ephesians chapter 5. In verses 17 through 21, we have a bit of review. We covered most of this section last week, but I want to start with verse 17 so that we can get the context of what Paul's saying here. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Pause there for just a moment. You see, God commands us to be filled with the Spirit. But in the original language in the Greek, the tense, the verb tense there is in the present. It's it's literally saying, be being filled with the Spirit. It's not a one-time thing. It's not something you look back to in your past and say, yep, I was filled with the Spirit. But Paul says, we need to moment by moment continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to take notes on your note sheet there, your first fill in the blank, it says to be filled with the Spirit means to be empowered and directed by the Spirit. 
To be filled with the Spirit means to be empowered and directed by the Spirit. There in that verse, in, in verse 18, Paul says, don't be, don't be filled with wine. Don't be drunk with wine because that wine will empower you and direct you to do foolish things. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit. And just as Pastor Lee told us last week, you simply need to ask. To ask God to fill you with the Spirit, and He will. It's something that we should constantly be praying. Lord, I need more of you. Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. Lord, I can't follow you with my own ability. Lord, please direct me in how you want me to live. And God, give me the strength to do it. Give me the strength to obey your leading. So Paul continues in Ephesians 5 verse 19. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, the word submit is a military term. It means to put yourself under someone else's authority, to get behind others in line. It means to put yourself last. On your note sheet, it says Christians are to submit to one another. That's what Paul's telling us in verse 21. Christians are to submit to one another, to put others before your own desires. God commands that you, because you are a Christian, because you are following Jesus, that you submit to other believers. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is the exact opposite of how our flesh wants to act and behave. We naturally want to serve ourselves, to submit to no one. But God says, You're mine. I bought you, I ransomed you, I rescued you, I saved you. So now stop serving yourself and submit to one another. In other words, I should treat you like you're more important than I am and your needs are more important than my needs. Likewise, you should treat me like I'm more important, caring for my needs before your own. That is the idea that God has here of Christians submitting to one another. Now we continue our passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 22 through 33. We read about a godly marriage. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, ladies, these verses might make you cringe a bit, but they shouldn't. Not if we understand what submission means and what submission doesn't mean. My favorite example of biblical submission is found in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested, the night before he was crucified. We read in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. 
It says, Then Jesus came with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. You see, he knew what was coming. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew Judas had already betrayed him. He knew that they were going to arrest him at any moment. And he knew that he was going to be beaten and mocked and crucified on the cross the following day. He knew that he would be bearing our sin upon himself. And so Jesus openly prayed saying, I don't want to do it this way, but not as I will, let your will be done. And so we pick up in verse 40, Jesus continues. It says, then Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So Jesus left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times Jesus prayed for a different way to rescue you and I from our sin, to rescue us from hell. Three times Jesus prayed to the Father saying, if there's any other way, let's do that. But three times Jesus ended his prayer with, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father. And this is what submission looks like to willingly serve another instead of serving yourself. But I want us to notice a few things that submission is not. We notice with the example of Jesus that submission is not based on the weaker serving the stronger, right? It has nothing to do with who has more wisdom or who is more spiritual. Jesus is God the Son. He's not less than God the Father, Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is God. And yet, he willingly submits himself to the Father, not because he's less, but because he's showing honor and respect to the Father. On your note sheet there, submission is about respect, not inferiority. Submission is about respect not inferiority. So wives, God does not command you to submit to your husband because he is better than you. God commands you to submit to your husband simply because he is your husband. Therefore, any single ladies that want to get married one day, if you're looking for a husband, make sure he's somebody that you're willing to submit yourself to, willing to respect and honor. Also, we see that because submission is not about inferiority, 
you can submit to your husband even when he is not a Christian. You can submit to your husband even when you think he is wrong. Because it's not about who's right. It's about honor and respect no matter what. This is God's command for Christian wives. There on your note sheet. A wife must respect her husband even when he doesn't deserve it. That is God's desire for a Christian wife. Respect your husband even when he doesn't deserve it. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know if I can do that. That sounds pretty difficult. But don't forget step one. Back in verse 18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. You see, you're not meant to do this in your own strength. You're not meant to do this in your own ability. It's only by God's leading and power that you can respect your husband at all times. Notice, too, in our example of Jesus submitting to the Father in the garden, that submission does not mean being silent. Jesus prayed to the Father. He told the Father what he wanted, what he preferred to do. But Jesus did so with respect, and Jesus still submitted himself to the Father's will. Now, if you think your husband is leading you in the wrong direction, then pray for him. Talk with him respectfully and trust that God is in control, even when you think your husband has made a wrong turn. We might point out that real submission only happens when you don't like it. Otherwise, you wouldn't need submission. When I was on a mission trip in Romania, we wanted to honor and respect their culture. And so when they fed me a plate of delicious sausage with spicy mustard, I didn't need to submit to their culture. That's not hard for me to do. It was amazing. It was delicious. But when they fed me gelatized pig's feet, that was different. I would rather say, you know what? I just remembered I'm fasting and praying right now. Can't eat it. Sorry. It looks great. But no, out of respect and honor for my Romanian friends, I ate the pig's feet with a smile on my face because I cared about them, because I cared more about them than I did about me. And because I didn't want to, that was an act of submission. It was an act against my own will. So look at our passage in verse 24 once again, Ephesians 5, 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Notice that wives are to follow after their own husbands. This passage is not telling women in general to follow men in general. In the family, the Bible says that the husband is the head or the leader. He's responsible for leading the family well. In the local church, the Bible says that those who are the elders, that are the leaders of the church, they should be men. But again, this has nothing to do with inferiority. The Bible says nothing about men leading in other areas. Women can run a business. Women can be the boss in the office. Women can serve in the government. This passage is talking about marriage. Now, before we move on, I think there are two situations in which a wife should not submit to her husband. And the first one is this. If your husband is leading you to sin, 
then you should submit to God and not to your husband. You still want to be respectful, but you shouldn't follow along with his lead if he's leading you to sin. And the second area is this. If your husband is abusing you verbally, sexually, or physically, or the kids, then you should not submit to him harming you. Call the police. Get some needed space. The idea of submission is not an excuse for an abusive relationship. Instead, the idea of submission is God's specific calling for how wives should love the Lord in their marriage. Now, we get to God's instruction for husbands. Look at your Bibles in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, the command to love is not a command to feel, but it's a command to act, a command to choose your wife over yourself. You see, biblical love is not a feeling, it's a choice. The world says, well, you fall in love and you fall out of love. But God says you choose to love others or you choose to love yourself. It's a choice either way. God tells us what true love looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. This is the New Living Translation. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. None of these are feelings. You don't feel patient or kind. You choose to be patient and kind. And so, husbands... Are you patient and kind towards your wife? Do you keep a record of your wife's mistakes? Do you bring those mistakes up, either out loud or just in your head? Do you try to justify your anger or your envy by thinking about the ways that she has fallen short? That's not loving her. That's loving yourself. That's loving your flesh. Does your love for her persevere? You see, the idea is that your love does not persevere unless it's hard. You don't persevere through a bag of chips in a favorite movie. That's not perseverance. If it is, I'd be great at that one, right? You persevere through a stressful, busy day at work. And so, too, you're not persevering in love when it's easy to love your wife. You persevere when it's hard to love your wife, but you do it anyway. Whenever somebody wrongs you, we're not just talking about marriage here, but anybody, whenever somebody sins against you, I challenge you to read this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, especially in your relationship with your spouse, because no matter how wrong you think the other person is, no matter how innocent you think you are, even when you think they are 99% of the problem, read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And replace the word love with your name and see how it reads. 
see how it goes. For me, it would read like this. This is the JFT translation, the Jared Fails translation. It says, Jared is patient. Jared is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jared does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jared never fails. The further we get in that, man, the the more I want to slink into my own shadow and just hide, right? You see, no matter what somebody has done against you, no matter what sin they've done against you, doing this exercise will help you and I recognize our faults, the ways that we fall short. It gets my eyes off of the person who sinned against me, and it gets my eyes on Jesus and on the mirror and say, okay, Lord, I hear you. It's not, it's not justifying what somebody might have done towards me. It's not saying that that was all right, but it is saying, Lord, there's some things that you're wanting to work on in my heart. And I can't control them, but I can let you work on me. And that's God's heart for us. So back in Ephesians chapter 5, I want us to read verse 25 again. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Let me ask you, how did Jesus show his love for the church? came and died, right? Came and gave himself for us. He gave himself for her, the church, through his death. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love, his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the type of love God commands you to have for your wife, to lay down your life for her, not just once, Honey, I did that already. Okay, we've checked that off the list. That doesn't work. But you lay down your life for her in a thousand little ways every day. That's God's command for Christian husbands. On your note sheet, a husband must sacrificially love his wife even when she doesn't deserve it. A husband must sacrificially love his wife even when she doesn't deserve it. Notice that Jesus loved us while we were still sinners. He loved us where we were at, but he also loved us by helping us to become more like him. And so husbands, two questions. Number one, do you love your wife where she is at right now, or do you only love her when she gets to the place you want her to be in? That will help us husbands recognize if we have a selfish love, or if we have a godly love for our spouse. You see, God doesn't tell you to love your wife because she makes good choices or to love your wife because she submits to and respects you. God commands you to love your wife because she is your wife, period. That's it. 
Here's the second question for you husbands. Do you love and lead your wife in such a way that draws her closer to Jesus? Think about this. We, the church, are full of brokenness. We still struggle in temptation. We still commit sin against the Lord. And yet, if you've trusted in Jesus, then he declares you perfect, spotless, and holy. As Jim shared in the communion message, he looks at us as as blameless. It's not because we are blameless. It's because Jesus paid for our sin. And he looks at us in mercy and grace. Well, husbands, this is how you are to view your wife. Stop focusing on her failures and treat her as perfect and spotless. You might say, I don't know if I can do that. I don't have the strength to love like that. You're right. Don't forget step one, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. You cannot do this in your own strength. You have to be filled with the Spirit, directed and empowered by God. Seek Him to fill you, to lead you, to empower you, to be the spouse that he's calling you to be. Paul continues his instructions in verse 28 in Ephesians 5. He says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This last verse is a quote from Genesis chapter 2. You see, God considers a husband and wife to be joined together as one flesh. That's why God is so clear about sexual sin. When you have sex with somebody you're not married to, you're becoming one flesh with somebody you're not married to. That's why God makes such a big deal about it. But in marriage, sex is a blessing, and God commands a husband and wife to love each other, and they are one flesh. I think it's amazing that God views a husband and wife, not as two people, but as one, one flesh. And so, too, husbands... Just as Jesus nourishes and cherishes his body, the body of Christ, we husbands should nourish and cherish our wife to continue to pour into her your love, to treat her with gentleness as somebody that you cherish. Now, all you single men, if you're looking for a wife one day, look for someone you are willing to sacrificially die to yourself for every day. Now, before we move on, I want us to look at five temptations to avoid. Here's the first one on your note sheet. It's tempting to emphasize what you're doing well to excuse what you lack. You see, the wife might say, well, I've respected him in lots of ways, so I've done enough. I'm done honoring him. I'm not going to honor him in this situation. But Paul said in Ephesians 5.24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The husband might say, I've loved her through all her mistakes, but I cannot forgive her of this one. But we just read in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, love never fails. You see, it's tempting for you and I 
to focus on all of the ways that we're obeying the Lord, the things that we're doing good at. But God wants you and me to recognize the areas that we're disobeying him in. Is there an area that you're not respecting your husband in? Is there an area that you're not sacrificially loving your wife in? Then repent. Recognize that it's sin. Repent. Be filled with the Spirit and honor God in your marriage. Here's the next one. It is tempting to wait until your spouse deserves it. It's the idea that says, well, I'll submit to him as soon as he starts loving me. I'll start loving her once she shows me some respect. This is what Dr. Emerson Egerix calls the crazy cycle in his book, Love and Respect. Crazy because as he's not getting the respect he craves, he doesn't give the love his wife craves. And because she doesn't get the love that she craves, she doesn't give the respect that he craves. And it just goes on and on. It's a crazy cycle. And you can stay stuck in that cycle for years. You might still be married. You might still live in the same house. You might still raise kids together, but you're not enjoying marriage very much. The solution is to realize that this is not a suggestion, but it's a command from the Lord. The Bible doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands when you feel like it or when they're good to you. Nor does it say, husbands, love your wives when they are worthy of your sacrificial love. You don't love and respect your spouse because they earn it or because they deserve it. You do it because God told you and because he's given you the power of his spirit to follow through. This is what Dr. Egerix calls the rewarded cycle, where the husband sacrificially loves his wife regardless of how well she's respecting him. And the wife respects her husband regardless of how well he is loving her. It's been said that marriage is not 50-50. Divorce is 50-50. Marriage should be 100% and 100%. And here's the idea. If I try to do my marriage by saying, I'm doing my 50, I'm, I'm doing my half, well, on the best day, I'm in the middle. And hopefully my wife is also meeting me there. But if we're both striving to give 100%, then on the days that maybe I'm not doing so great, maybe she's help picking up the slack and vice versa on the other days. And I love that picture. It's the idea that the ball's in your court. You have your orders from God. Husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. So don't wait for your spouse to be better. Get busy with what God is commanding you to do. Here's the next temptation to avoid on your note sheet. It's tempting to serve with selfish rather than godly motives. It's tempting to serve with selfish rather than godly motives. It's tempting to love your wife so that she'll treat you better. It's tempting to respect your husband so that he'll love you better. It's tempting to love and respect your spouse so that your marriage can be saved. But none of those should be your reasoning. Don't put your hope in the temporary. God commands you to love and respect your spouse, period. Will it bless your marriage? Absolutely. 
Will it rescue you from divorce? Maybe. But it's always better to obey the Lord because you love God than trying to obey the Lord because you want your circumstances to improve. It's a dangerous place to be in. If I can be honest, you don't have a choice because I've got a microphone, but if I can be honest, God doesn't promise you how others will receive your love and respect. God doesn't promise that if you follow steps A, B, and C, then he will redeem and rescue your broken marriage. But God does tell you what your job is. And that's why we do it, because we want to love and honor the Lord. Can God work miracles? Absolutely. Can God rescue the most broken marriage? Absolutely. But it's not a guarantee. So put your hope in the Lord, not in your circumstances getting better. Here's the next thing to avoid. It's tempting to think that you married the wrong person. It's tempting to think that you married the wrong person. Even among Christians, we sometimes believe this lie that God has one perfect person for you to marry. But the truth is, God doesn't care so much who you marry, but more how you do marriage. God does warn us not to be unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. A Christian should never date or marry a non-Christian because they won't have the same focus on Jesus. That's like putting a yoke, a harness, on two oxen who are walking in different directions. Try to plow that field. Good luck. But sometimes when your marriage is struggling, you can believe this lie that you married the wrong person. Maybe you even look back at your relationship and you're like, man, I think God was telling me not to marry this person, but I did it anyway. And now that my life is so horrible, I think I should go back and listen to what God said. It's, I think it's God's will for me to get divorced and marry somebody else. This is a lie from Satan. You see, the moment that you said, I do, your spouse became God's will for your life. Even if the day before, God was saying, don't do it. Don't do it. The moment you say, I do, God says, all right, we're going with plan B. <laughs> and you know what? God will bless plan B. Amen. He's the God of second chances. And so don't believe that lie that you've married the wrong person. Your command and order from the Lord is to love your spouse, the one you're married to now. So don't believe those lies. Finally, the last thing to avoid is this. It is tempting to forget that biblical leadership is servant leadership. Biblical leadership is servant leadership. We talked about how God made the husband the head of the household and the leader of the family. But that does not mean the husband makes all the decisions and the wife needs to adapt. That's not biblical leadership. Remember that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So let me ask you, did Jesus stay in heaven and call down to us, say, you better get in line. I'm waiting for you to figure it out. Stop your sinning, change your life and follow me. That's worldly leadership. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus left his throne 
He became flesh. He met us in our sin. Jesus adapted to us. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, when we look at Jesus' example, we see that he led by adapting to us far more than we've adapted to him. And so, husbands ought to lead their families by being the greatest servant, not by being the strongest leader. Pastor Larry Osborne gives this practical advice to husbands. He says, if it's a matter of preference, let your wife win. If it's a matter of eternal consequences, then lead her well. I appreciate that word of wisdom. To love like Jesus loved the church means husbands are to lead by serving, by sacrificing, and by pursuing their wives. The husband makes the greater sacrifice. And if a husband does that, it gets a lot easier to submit to somebody like that. Well, we've covered a lot. And you may be wondering, why is this so important? Why have we spent so much time today on marriage? Well, Paul tells us in the next verse, Ephesians 5, verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God says that the Christian marriage represents Jesus' relationship with the church. As a husband sacrificially loves his wife, it reminds us of Jesus sacrificially giving himself for us. As a wife submits and honors and respects her husband, it reminds us of the church submitting and honoring and respecting Jesus. That's why it's a big deal. Now, obviously, a wife needs both love and respect, and a husband needs both love and respect. Yet, in a poll of 7,000 people, they were asked this question. When you are in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved or disrespected? 83% of husbands said they felt disrespected. 72% of the wives said they felt unloved. So, while you or your spouse might be outside the norm, here we have in God's word, Ephesians 5, verse 33, God commanding husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect your husband. Simple. It's hard to do. We can only do it by the power of his Holy Spirit. But I challenge you, if you're married, to go above and beyond in sacrificially loving your wife every day. And I challenge you, if you're married, to go above and beyond in respecting your husband every day. Here's your last fill in the blank. The secret to a better marriage Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Be being filled with the Spirit continually, day by day. Serve your spouse, not to get something in return, but because you fear the Lord. 
May God help us to honor and love him as we seek to do marriage his way for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we thank you that you are the perfect example of how to sacrificially love. Lord, you're also the perfect example of how to respectfully submit. And God, we recognize that we can do nothing in our own strength other than sin. And so, Lord, we ask that you would please right now fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. God, would you empower us to obey you and follow you? God, would you guide and lead and direct us? God, I pray for the marriages. God, would you please bring healing and restoration? Lord, even to those who are just ready to sign papers and be done with it. God, I pray that you would give them hope in you. God, I pray that you would help us as individuals to be ready and eager to die to our flesh and to say, Lord, help me to love others. Lord, help me to submit to others. God, help me to honor and obey you in the relationships you've put in my life. God, would you protect the marriages from the attacks of Satan? Protect the marriages from the lies of this world and from the lies of our own heart. And Holy Spirit, would you please just put your finger on that thing in our heart individually that you're saying, this is what I want to work on next. And then, Lord, would you give us the strength and the humility to say, okay, Lord, I don't want to. It's going to hurt, but, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to let you work on me, even in that area. God, would you be glorified? And, Lord, would you please bless the marriages so that we can be a picture of your love for the church? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.